This is Dr. David Proden, and I want to thank you as we begin another journey into school and community safety. If you're looking for industrial safety expert, Appalachian State University professor, Dr. Timothy Ludwig, please visit www.safety-doc.com. Again, that's Dr. Timothy Ludwig at www.safety-doc.com. Welcome to the Safety Doc Podcast with author, radio host, and nationally recognized safety expert, Dr. David Perodin. Join us each week as we discuss the best and most bizarre practices in safety preparation and crisis response. Follow Dr. Perodin on Twitter at SafetyPhD. And remember, the truth will keep you safe. Hi, this is Dr. David Perodin, and welcome to the Safety Doc Podcast. For those of you watching the show, I'm wearing a beanie hat, wearing a very warm zip-up jacket and also an insulated shirt underneath. And why, you might ask, on this early March day? The reason is it will be minus 11 degrees this evening. It is zero right now. Unusually chilly weather in Wisconsin. And down here in the North Star Recording Studio, it is a brisk 54 degrees. The problem with the studio is that it's not heated. So once we get into winter, it's okay for a while. But we had minus 33 degree weather a few weeks ago. And then, quote, it warmed up, quote, a little bit um, after that. And now we're back down to some very cold temperatures. That tends to make the recording studio just a tad a chilly. So, um, yeah, instead of the sport coat and the dress shirt, um, I'm going with preserving as much body temperature as I can right now. So one of the rare times, for those of you watching the show, I look like in a, one of the sailors on the Alaskan crab ships, you know. I've seen those guys right now. I could easily walk on board. Yes, I've done this before. I think you can make a lot of money in a short amount of time. It's very treacherous work. And uh, I'm not sure I've got the young sea legs for that type of task. But daylight savings time is a week away. I have a new car, which means I have to learn how to program the car to set the time forward. So looking forward to that. Um, Also with my new car, um, have now two chips in the windshield, Uh, 3,000 miles on the car, already have two chips on the windshield. Not much you can do with the driving when so much rock salt is put down on the roads everywhere. And even if you're you know, four or five car lengths in back of somebody, you know, somebody passes you, swerves in front of you, whatever, and kicks up some of the rock salt that's on the road, instant chip in the windshield. So that's pretty disappointing. And it also has me thinking, haven't we gotten to the point where we can perfect the chipless, crackless windshield from rocks and debris? You know, like the Gorilla Glass, they have it for the cell phones and things like that. Why Why don't we have that for windshields? I mean, that just seems like that should be, should have been something that came out about 20 years ago. And it's like every windshield made after, you know, that has this protection. And unless it's really a freak incident, it's, it's going to be fine. I get the whole idea. Yeah, tempered glass. And if there's an accident, the window needs to shatter into all these, you know, tiny pieces to hopefully not, you know, cut up the occupants. I get all of that, but still the whole protection and all of this stuff. Um, I did a little research actually, because I was so frustrated on this and, uh, they do put this special protective layer on heavy machinery that works like in quarries and stuff like that, um, to protect the windshield. So it's just one of those things too. Like when you get a car, like I bought this thing new that they didn't say, there's an option for you um, of fortifying the windshield. I mean, I probably would have gone for it had they 
had they said, yeah, you know, this this increases the strength 10 times if it's from a rock or something like that. I don't know. It's just disappointing. And you always hear the thing of once the original factory seal is gone, it's never as good. And I don't know if that's true or not because every vehicle I've owned, eventually I've ended up replacing the windshield multiple times. So we're not to that point yet. Like it's been repaired and, you know, whatever. But it's still one of those things like, oh, you know, why? Why? There has been so much snow in my hometown. So where I grew up, not where I live now. I grew up in in more of northern Wisconsin. I live now in southern Wisconsin. But in my hometown where I grew up, uh, they've, they've just permitted people to stop shoveling their sidewalks and just say, you know what? There's no place to put the snow. They've had record amounts of snow. So much in February um, that what's, what's happening is they're creating like these 8 to 10 foot piles of snow um, on the corners of, of roadways. So when you pull up with your car and you're trying to look around the corner, you're trying to creep out a little bit of, you know, trying to get a view. Is there a car coming or not? Boom. You know, you get hit by another car. So they're just saying at this point, forget it. (laughs) It's a losing battle. It's still snowing. It's still, you know, like if it's minus, you know, 10, 11 here tonight up there, it's going to be minus 20. Everything's nothing's melting. We're just going to wait until April or May when all of this stuff just takes care of itself. So, I'm like, wow, that is crazy. I've never heard about that. You know, like in all of my time growing up in town, we were always out shoveling. Uh, But I think the difference was back then, you didn't have the cold where it would like heavily, you know, freeze things down of this minus 30, minus 40. Um, But yeah, any anyway... It's, uh, they have the, the decree, you do not have to shovel the sidewalks anymore in this, in this city. So very fascinating. I also heard on the news that Los Angeles, the city of Los Angeles in February, was the first time I believe in 132 years they did not record one day that was at least 70 degrees. So I guess my theme is I'm not liking the cold weather. It seems to also be across much of the country friend of mine lives in Arizona, sent a picture after they got hit with 20 inches of snow. First time that's happened in that area, but quickly melted away. Not so much the case right here. So yeah, everyone is celebrating Dr. Seuss and, you know, read the the reading activities that go along with all of the Dr. Seuss books. Um, But Here's what people tend to forget. So people will ask me, hey, what do you think about Dr. Seuss? Or, you know, it's Dr. Seuss read a long day or whatever. I'm like, you know what? So that's fine. But like the other part of Dr. Seuss, so Theodore Seuss Gesell, he, he wasn't really a great guy. So if you Google him, plus World War II propaganda, massively involved in propaganda, racist propaganda, um, it's unbelievable. So granted, like he was enrolled by his government to do these, um, you know, anti-Japan, anti-Germany posters and and cartoons and things like that. But it's really much more broad if you look at the work that he did kind of during that span of his career. So it's amazing that we celebrate Dr. Seuss Day and there isn't this contingency of people uh, who – almost rally against that considering how easy it is to rally against things today. The fact that Dr. Seuss was very openly and the, and the evidence is all out there. You just have to find it in a type in Google search. And I mean, it's just, it's today, if he would make one of those drawings, he, his career would be over, be bad. But yet this is the person we celebrate by putting on a 10 foot tall hat that is uh, striped with red and white. I, I don't know. I just don't get it. I'm not a big Dr. Seuss fan anyway with the books and all of the silly rhymes, stuff like that. But it's kind of this weird double standard of we don't also look back in history for Dr. Seuss, but yet we hold other people definitely to those retrospective standards and judging them of what might have been acceptable in the context of that time, but applying it to the time forward, I don't know. It just doesn't it, it just doesn't sit well with me. So here's something though that is awesome and will sit well with everybody. It is School of Airs, Rethinking School Safety in America, my book. 
coming out on August 10th by Publishing House, Roman and Littlefield. Again, School of Airs will be released on August 10th by Publishing House, Roman and Littlefield. Um, right now it is in production. Also, um, you know, production, which is artwork, marketing, and the uh, the manuscript was completed a month ago, except it. So it is just in this phase of, of buildup for the, the release. And the date of August 10th also coincides with kind of where the peak is for back-to-school advertising. So the book will be able to benefit from that just national uh, wave of back-to-school advertising. And, of course, then you can pick up School of Airs at that same time. We'll talk about that much more. I've been scheduling out interviews, uh, shows that I will be a guest on regarding School of Airs um, once we get closer to August 10th. Because I don't want to do interviews right now and then the question from whoever is the host will say, well, Dave, where can people get your book? And I'd be, well, they can wait X number of months and then go to this site and here's where the book will be because that's just not good promotion. So, uh, but it will be, uh, again, the book is School of Errors. I take away the rhetoric. I worked three years on this. It has received stellar reviews from people in the industry, people outside of the industry that have read it. It's really the blueprint for what we need to look at as school safety going forward and moving away from a fortification first model. Um, so again, School of Errors, if you're an educator, if you're a parent, if you're a grandparent, you have kids, you just want to know what's going on with school safety. We have 55 million kids who go to school every day in the United States. So, you know, once we include parents and grandparents that, there's a lot of people who obviously are impacted either directly or indirectly by our schools in the United States. And of course, with school shootings and school violence, School of Errors is the master plan to help center those issues and help to solve those conundrums. Seriously, folks, it is that powerful. I want to give a thank you, a shout out to supporters of the show. First, the 405 Media, the 405media.com out of Los Angeles, California. John Grant, the 405 Media, the League of Extraordinary Podcasters. Check out the lineup. You will find 2 p.m. PST daily. My show, the Safety Dog Podcast, followed by Aaron Clary and the Clary Podcast. My friend Aaron Clary, check out the Clary Podcast. Um, and also, you know, just uh, check out some of the, the work that Aaron is producing on his, his website, captaincapitalism.blogspot.com. Um, also, a shout out to Radio and podcast. If you want to learn more about radio and podcast, go to radioandpodcast.com. Of course you want to learn more, right? Jim Mallard um, is the curator of radio and podcasts. And just Jim Mallard, the host of the Mallard Report, he has had Roger Stone, um, James Fitzgerald, just incredible, incredible guest on his show. I was I was a guest on his show too. Um Radio and podcasts, going from conspiracy to contemporary to paranormal, um, a range. And it's amazing. Jim is such a professional um, with his shows. They're, they're an hour long. They're very, very well um, crafted as far as his questions. I mean, he's, he's really, um, you know, such, a, such an easy host to work with. And that's why I think so many people um, are willing and, and seek him out to be on his show. It's, it's just wonderful. I always download all of um, Jim's guests and, and like listening to him and his interaction with his guests. Check out radioandpodcast.com. A thank you to Sprigio, S-P-R-I-G-E-O, Sprigio.com. Sprigio is the nation's leader in online school safety reporting system, Sprigio. Dot com. Gave a shout out just a minute ago to the Clary podcast, which is on the405media.com. Also, a shout out to Mountain Pass Podcast with TJ Martinell. Check out Mountain Pass Podcast. You can go to SoundCloud and find that. If you want to listen to TJ's adventures, somebody living in Washington State who's getting out, hiking the mountains, 
taking his friend's dog, Reese, with him and also mixing in perspectives on politics from the Tenth Amendment Center and just generalizations of of what he is observing um, in his line as a reporter. Fascinating. He's also the author of books, including uh, the series The Stringers, which is kind of set in that 1930s gritty detective style. Really great stuff. You will enjoy listening to Mountain Pass Podcast with TJ Martinell. Today's show centers the problem. I've been using centers the problem. It's kind of something I've been writing about lately using that terminology, but the problem. We have at least 10 million school-aged children with disabilities in the United States that aren't receiving the same quality of safety instruction as their non-disabled peers. So these could be students with autism, students with learning disabilities, uh, students with uh, intellectual disabilities, anxiety, students with visual disabilities, um, and so on. Just get get the idea. Also, students who are learning English, um, not receiving the same level, meaning they're receiving a lesser level or no level at all. They're just being exempted from safety instruction. So... This is a huge concern. I mentioned this in School of Airs. Didn't go that deep into it because it actually deserves its own book, which I am working on. Um, but it is a serious problem. And I want to share a recent communication that I had with a disability rights attorney. I'm, I'm just going to read this off and quote some some. Uh, of our discussion. So in a recent communication, um, California disability rights lawyer, Jim Sibley stated to me, to the safety doc, David, it is amazing how many schools think that sparing special education students from participation in fire drills, active shooter drills, and the like is showing them some sort of kindness. Many disabled students present special challenges during emergency situations and they shouldn't just be included in regular safety planning. There should be specialized safety planning in place for them. And for those plans to be successful, there needs to be preparation and practice. So first of all, in this um, conversation with Jim, Jim's saying disabled students, I tend to use students with disabilities, putting the person first, but... um, Again, that's just kind of a, a just a vernacular point I wanted to, to make you aware. Of. But he has a website, survivingspecialeducation.com. Again, he's, he's been a disability rights lawyer for several years, has a phenomenal website, survivingspecialeducation.com, talks about being the father of two children with disabilities and specifically working um, with parents who have children with disabilities on trying to interface with the school systems to have the needs of the children um, met by the the school system. And that's not easy. You know, I was a student services director. I I know it from that side, been an expert witness, know it from that side. But um, I always respect people like Jim um, who have seen this from a perspective of a parent of a student with a disability and then Know, representing as a, as an attorney for disability rights. Again, his his website, uh, survivingspecialeducation.com. Um, so it's on there. Uh, J- Jim's instincts honed from over 25 years as a trial attorney combined with his understanding gained through 17 years raising an autistic son to create a potent advocate for special needs students and their families fighting for fair treatment. So I'm going to be doing some work with him um, to get information to inform my next book, um, which has a working title of um, The Sidelines of Safety. So and today's show's title is Why the Sidelines of School Safety Are a Tragic Act of Kindness. Thank you for tuning in to the Safety Doc Podcast with the nation's leading safety expert, Dr. David Perodin, author, radio show host, university instructor, researcher, expert witness, and consultant. Powerful testimonials. 
Dr. Perodin has a strong reputation as the go-to safety consultant, and he was still able to exceed our expectations. When we went looking for an expert in the field of crisis preparedness and prevention, David was the single person we pursued. Not easy stepping into the touchier subjects of life, but Dr. David pulls it off. Take a listen. Now, back to Dr. David Perodin and the Safety Doc Podcast. Yeah, I just want to cash this check real quick. Okay, yeah, sure, that's something I can help you out with. Okay, let's take a look here. I'm sorry, what do you get this check for? I got it for working hard and then someone underpaid me for it. If you could just cash it, that'd be great. Okay, okay, sure, sure. Um, it looks like this check is from Texas. Were you in Texas? Yeah, I know where the check is from. I had it before you, remember? Okay, okay. So, uh, did you work for this company or...? Yeah, again, I work for the company and the guy wrote me a check. Are you new here or something? Do I gotta explain the whole process to you? Okay, okay, let me have a look here. I'm sorry, sir. Uh, I can't cash this. Why in the hell not? That's literally half your job. Cash and check. So what the research tells us about students with disabilities and school safety. So it's really been a thin research base, very thin. You can find a few blog entries, you can find a few journal articles, which those things help with awareness, but they don't help with the research base and they're not per the scientific model. Um, so perhaps the best research on this was a meta-analysis and that's where you look at many research studies and then you distill common themes and that happened in 1998, Alicia Davis and David Gast. The title of the study, Social Safety for Young Children, a Review of the Literature on Safety Skills, Instruction, Topics in Early Childhood Special Education. So talks about early childhood, but really this is more probably about elementary. So I'm going to read a portion of this. Young children in today's society may find themselves in situations that require appropriate action in order to avoid dire consequences such as injury or death. These situations may be the result of contact with objects in the physical environment, action in order to avoid dire consequences such as injury or death, such as guns, knives, or toxins. In other cases, children may be faced with confronting dangers in the social environment such as avoiding the lures of strangers or responding to the abuse or neglect of a caregiver. Although safety education programs are implemented frequently in schools, few research studies have systematically evaluated the methodology for teaching safety skills to young children. The purpose of this article is to provide a review of the empirical literature related to safety skills instruction for young children with and without disabilities. Findings are classified into two groups, lures of strangers and sexual abuse. Implications for future research are discussed. This study also mentioned abduction prevention, okay, and it also mentioned sexual abuse prevention. This thing was ahead of its time. This is, these are contemporary topics right now. We're talking about grooming and um, sexual offenders and abduction. So this was 1998, so they were already getting into this. So it's meta-analysis. This is this is really well done. A, a great meta-analysis from 21 years ago. And the thing is, we're not going in the direction of studying this deeper. That's the part of rhetoric and safety. Rhetoric drives decision-making, drives bills. Like after Sandy Hook, 450 bills suddenly come out regarding school safety, most on fortification, all built upon sand, no research. So at the end of this study, so we talk about this again, study from Alicia Davis and David Gass, a meta-analysis where you take many studies and try to find the common themes. They did an excellent job with this in 1998. At the end, they say for future research, here's, I'm going to quote this part. Perhaps the most critical need in the area of safety skills instruction for young children is additional research that specifically, systematically replicates procedures. 
A number of the studies included in this review used a lecture slash discussion or video presentation format to teach skills to groups of young children. So basically saying, here's what we want you to know about, you know, harassment or stranger danger, and we're showing it via videos. Back then, VHS, VHS tapes probably. Few of the studies described in this review specified systemic procedures that could be replicated with high procedural reliability, meaning they didn't exclusively write out step-by-step what they did, okay, which is a big problem for inter-rater re- reliability. Several studies employed a group design to examine the effectiveness of intervention procedures without reporting individual student performance data. Group design. What group design looks like now, it's like the Youth Risk Behavior Survey, the YRBS. It's a group design. It's a survey given to a whole bunch of kids, and you try to boil some data out of that and say, this is the sentiment of the kids, which might be somewhat accurate. But again, if it's like 12% of the students are considering harm to self, that's relatively useless versus here are the names of the 12% of the students who are considering harm to self. That's extremely valuable. So these things, when you're looking at group design for studies like this that really focus on individual and case-by-case, they don't work very well. So they pointed that out, that if you're going to do things like this, you really need to get it down to a student level, a student being your unit of measurement, and then work with that student on qualitative, having discussions with them, um, and then also monitoring that student over time so you have reliability, different sampling um, that you can take over time. So the literature presented in this review supports the conclusion of Cleese and Gass 1994 that safety skills instruction should include in vivo assessment to ensure that the skills generalize to natural environments. In vivo meaning that they are assessing if these skills are happening not only in the school, but if they're happening when the child's on the playground, if they're following these when they're at the mall, when they're walking to school, things like that, in vivo, in the environment. I touch on that in my book. Um, This is why we need reconnaissance, why we need safety to be taught when kids take trips to, as eighth graders, to Washington, D.C., in vivo, in that setting, versus... um, a virtual field trip to Washington, D.C. So this is an especially important point because the literature indicates that although young children can learn safety skills in simulated environments, this does not generally lead to fluent performance in non-training settings. Again, this whole like we can VR, virtual reality, teach kids about safety, teach kids about their environment, about, you know, virtual field trips that doesn't generalize to non-training settings. In order for safety skills to be functional for children, they must be applied across environments and endure over time in the absence of instruction. The maintenance of behavior related to safety skills is therefore another area warranting investigation. Safety skills are important throughout life. Okay, throughout life, yes. So again, when we are taking students and exempting students from drills, we're saying this student with autism doesn't have to participate in the fire drill. That is where we are now denying that student a a life skill, something they need for life. So the fluent application of these skills across environments and time should be frequently assessed and retrained as necessary to ensure that a child will use them whenever they become necessary. That was the point brought up by the attorney that I had cited earlier. I had the discussion where he said, not only do we have to to provide specialized training for students with disabilities, we have to make sure that we provide additional training uh, and additional preparation. Do that until we know that they're feeling competent and confident with that. So further research is needed to determine the specific strategies that facilitate generalization and maintenance and that monitor safety skills most effectively. So I like that. Further research is needed to determine the specific strategies that facilitate generalization and maintenance. Okay, so how are you, what you're teaching? What's the most effective way to teach that so it generalizes across settings? 
and that it also maintains. So after you've taught it, it's something that sticks with you more than for three days, that it sticks with you for your whole life. How do we, how do, we do that? I, t- I talk about that. I have an idea. I talk about that. Sir Baden-Powell's scouting games, the situational awareness activities where you take, you know, maybe eight or 10 students with you, walk around for 15 minutes and you have things set up in the environment, um, such as maybe the song Jingle Bells playing um, near a swing set. You know, you have some chalk drawings of like ancient aliens, stuff like that on sidewalks a cutout of Justin Bieber and car seat that you have a car, you walk past just things like that scent of like oranges, you know, uh, poured somewhere. So as you're going past, you know, you could recognize that. And then, so you do things like this and you do them more frequently and you, you then keep asking students, what did you notice? Tell me what you noticed, what you remember, what you recall, what seemed out of the ordinary, what seemed ordinary. And you get students to bring that awareness of safety and then embed that. They're always kind of flipped on in their mind to situational awareness. So the safety doc is just in summary at where we are at right now in the show is we have a problem going on and that is we have students who are being exempted from safety drills and also not receiving an equitable level of safety instruction as their non-disabled peers. And they simply are not prepared for emergencies. And why is this happening? Um, I had a discussion with Danny Woodburn, actor Danny Woodburn. And Danny was asking if this was happening because parents were opting children out of this, uh, out of these drills, or putting pressure on schools to not have their children exposed to these safety drills and safety instruction. And I responded to Danny, so that's not really what I see is happening. It's not so much that parents do that. Now, you do have, in general, I think it's pretty even between parents of students with disabilities and parents of students without disabilities, whether or not they want their children to participate in drills, especially intruder drills. So, you know, that sentiment is pretty equal across both groups. So this is more or less, though, the teachers who are doing this and – you know, where attorney um, Jim Sibley had said it's it's done as a way of, of schools thinking that they're sparing special education students. Um, I agree with that, and I think probably it's sparing might not be the word I would use. I think the word I would use is protecting students, protecting them from the trauma of of going through these drills or the complexities of trying to learn these and the frustrations that they might encounter. Not that it makes it any better. I just think it's it's a, a different way to kind of frame it um, because I do think teachers are doing this mostly in the best interest of students that are trying to act in the best interest of students. It's not turning out that way. My discussion in this episode is anecdotal. I'm not basing this upon research. We talked about the 1998 study, but I have been involved in focus groups of students. I have been a school district student services director, uh, safety expert, university instructor, working with students actually right now who are directors or aspiring directors telling me what's happening in their districts. We're having those discussions legal issues, people, non-discrimination, inclusion, so forth. So I have a knowledge base. I have a PhD. I'm playing the expert card a little bit in this discussion just because I have to play it to cover up the void, which is created because we don't have a research base in this topic. So I continued to work with research um, in digging and digging in the different, you know, Jern uh, and the the different Jern.org and the different resource um, tools available. What was coming up when I would do searches for students with disabilities um, and instruction and safety drills and different combinations of words, this was coming up, quote, vulnerable population and methods for their safeguard. Now, these are studies of saying, if we have people um, who have severe cognitive disabilities 
um, and they have to be cared for. There is a power of attorney. What does that look for? Somebody is looking out for a vulnerable, vulnerable population or, you know, people who are patients in nursing homes, um, things like that, where people are more or less incapacitated to the ability to, to the level of not um, being able to make decisions in their best interest. You have to act for them. That's completely different than what we're talking about here. Um, we're talking about where a lot of these students, the majority of these students are able to act, make decisions um, when presented with different safety scenarios. But again, they are not instructed in these areas. So this whole vulnerable population and methods for their safeguard actually kind of alarmed me when that came up because it was almost a way of saying, yeah, if we go down this road, it does allow adults to make this decision for students and then for other adults of saying, you know what, um, I'm deeming that you are a vulnerable p population. I am going to make decisions which I think will be in your best interest for safety. And there are times when that's appropriate. We go through measures such as the power of attorney, which is a legal process and all that. But there's other times when that can greatly push what is available for discretion into an area that's almost an abuse of power. Thank you for tuning in to the Safety Doc Podcast with the nation's leading safety expert, Dr. David Perodin, author, radio show host, university instructor, researcher, expert witness, and consultant. Powerful testimonials. Dr. Perodin has a strong reputation as the go-to safety consultant, and he was still able to exceed our expectations. When we went looking for an expert in the field of crisis preparedness and prevention, David was the single person we pursued. Not easy stepping into the touchier subjects of life, but Dr. David pulls it off. Take a listen. Now, back to Dr. David Perodin and the Safety Doc Podcast. Okay, so let me get this straight. You're not gonna cast a check, and you're not gonna give me a reason why. Is that right? Correct. Okay, yeah? I'm gonna sit here in the middle of your lobby and call customer service. How you like that, Diddley? I don't have an account number. No, I don't have no account. I don't have an account number. What does this all mean for school safety instructions and students with special needs? This is what we've all been waiting for, right, folks? What does this mean? So I think it comes down to some key points. One, schools are exempting students with disabilities from participating in drills and doing this by using the IEP individualized education plan process or a parent opt-out form. So neither of these are legal, uh, by the way. You cannot legally exempt a student from participating in a fire drill. You cannot do that. Now, you can have a situation where instead of that student exiting the building, there would be a room, a fire safe room, which would be, be determined by the fire inspector and the school's legal insurance carrier, where then that uh, person with an adult or people who couldn't be safely transported, let's say that they were, um, you know, with wheelchairs and, and whatever the situation was, that you have a room that then would be a fire safe room that's rated. If you go into this room for X amount of time, fire department arrives, they would go first and rescue people from this room. Those do exist. Um, but we are flat out saying school uh, people who are writing, teachers who are writing into students' IEPs or plans, students with disabilities, saying, uh, Jimmy, you know, uh, Sarah, um, Alice and Armando, no, no. Um, Rajiv, no. They, they don't have to participate in the school safety drills. So... Whenever we have a fire drill, an intruder drill, we're just going to exempt them. They're going to go in the library until it's over, or they can stay home that day. Or we'll do something where we will inoculate, we'll shield them. 
from this drill. We'll protect them, pardon them from the drill. They won't even know what's going on. Um, so yeah, that's it. That's what they'll do. Or this parent opt-out form. And I know this happens. I know this happens because students I teach tell me this happens. They'll say this happens in my school. We have an actual form, David. We have a form we've created. We give to parents and they can opt their parent, their student out of a fire drill. Student with, let's, for example, student with autism. I'm just saying this because it's ubiquitous. It's going to give you some understanding. Um, student with autism, they're saying, you know, we're going, we're going to exempt the student. They don't have to participate in the drill. So, all right, everybody, this is, this is a rough issue, a rough installment here for the safety doc because I'm losing my voice. I don't feel very well. I'm, obviously, if you look at me, I'm barely staying warm, but um, I want to get this this out. And I think to have episodes which I'm rock starring and we have terrific guests and then episodes which are just like all of us, we have some days which are great and some days which aren't that great and we have to get through the days that aren't that great. This you know, show presents some of its challenges because my voice is going out. But, um, but I think the message is there and I want you to stay with me. So um, schools cannot legally exempt students from mandated drills. They can't do this. Although I have students in my classes that tell me all the time this practice happens and it's fine. It's fine, Dave. It's fine. We do this. My own, it's not fine. They can't do this. No, we do it. I'm like, okay, you, you're doing it, but you know, legally you can't do this. And if your attorney is telling you you're doing it, your attorney is wrong. You cannot exempt a student out of a fire drill, a federally mandated fire drill. You cannot do that. So we have this, this approach where, why, why is this happening? Why are teachers doing this? And I think the, again, it's drill trauma. We don't want the student to, you know, all of a sudden the, the lights are, the strobe lights are going and, and the whoop, whoop, whoop siren is going. And we don't want the student to become nervous, freak out, whatever it is, and then become very um, agitated or be, you know, nervous of, of coming back into the school. Is this going to happen again? So I think part of that's there. The other part is it takes a while in different ways to train students I, training it probably isn't the right word to to educate students um, to help them with okay when this happens um, this is what we do a social story so it, it, there's an educational piece to it have them walk through it in little pieces um, of drills practicing drills without actually having the authentic sirens and all of that you know the hallway stuff going yet um, but go through and practice because this gets into greater measures of what if you're out in public and something happens? What if you're home and a alert comes over the TV for a tornado? Um, you know, you also want to be able to transfer, just like the research said, across environments that you're not freezing, that you are going into a shelter. I talk about this too. You know, it's like, a student graduates and then they get in their 20s and they're in an apartment and they were exempted from drills or given lesser drill instruction. Uh, apartment starts on fire. They hear a fire alarm. They go into their closet and they perish from smoke inhalation. Um, so these are just the types of dire consequences and realities that we have to deal with. So, and sometimes it's just the path of least resistance. The, the, Staff know that if they try to have the student comply with a drill, that the student is going to become very aggressive. Um, again, that I believe that needs to be an IEP goal. There needs to be a plan for that. And, you know, an educator could say, well, again, it's easier to do this opt-out. It is until it's authentic. And then what What are you left with? Um, you you. Again, if we have a safety, if you have a student who is a runner in a school, meaning they run for the door, they get out, and then they take off, you do not have the option of saying, well, this is, they're just running, you know, so we, we're not going to go after them. This is just what they're, what they're doing. We're going to exempt that they have to stay in the school building. No, I mean, I've had cases where I've been 
special education director, elementary student, bolts from the building. And we've had to, you know, grab that student because they're headed toward a busy road where the consequence could be that that student is hit by a car. Now, have we done things in the school um, such as, you know, monitoring the student and, and educating about the doors? Yes, we do more of that. And trying to put this student in a position where they're not proximal to a, a, a door. So, um, but if those types of things do happen, you just can't throw up your hands and say, well, we're, it is what it is. Um, so you would have what's called a safety plan in place then. And these things are common in schools, but yet this whole thing where you can exempt people from drills. And parents go with this because they want to be cooperative with the school for one. And if the school is kind of selling it to them of saying, you know, this is, this is going to be better off because your child won't be agitated when they come home tonight or the series of drills is better if they stay home tonight. A parent called me specifically after their student with autism was put into a library and then got home um, later that day and there was an email that went out from the school talking about like the intruder drill that day. And the parent thought it was kind of surprising that her son didn't say anything about this. So they did some investigation, her and her husband with the school, and they said, oh, yeah, we, when you're, we have these drills. Uh, your son doesn't participate in these drills. We put him in the library with some other students, and, and it's better because then he doesn't have to deal with all of this and try to process it. He has autism. So we just exempt him out. And the parents didn't know this, and they were furious, and they got a hold of me, and they said, what do we do about this? My reaction was, first of all, that what the school is doing, they can't legally do. They can't do this. So you need to meet with them immediately and um, identify, reconvene the IEP and identify how your student will receive training on safety instruction and demonstrate competency with safety instruction. It might not be perfect, um, but it is going to, to be a lot more than it is now and no, the um, they cannot exempt your child out of drills. And especially the fact that they were doing this without you knowing. You knew just because this email came through to you. Um, but we're seeing, again, this is trending, this opt-out. And using this IEP process, the IEP process can be a very dangerous tool if it's used for the wrong reasons. And this is definitely one of those wrong reasons. So, um, again, yeah, it's a challenge and a lot of our school systems aren't, and people have been trained in how to work with students with disabilities for safety instruction. But that then goes back to training programs need to be morphed, need to be revamped so they address these things. And then also that schools are addressing this in professional development. So from my book, School of Airs. Now is the time to fund research into the Youth Code of Silence, teaching youth how to increase their situational awareness and revamping our school safety instruction and threat reporting systems to be accessible to the 10 million students in America with special needs or language barriers. Imagine moving these youth from the sidelines of safety into important active roles of monitoring their environments and effectively reporting threats to school safety. So that's so where I'm going to close out kind of that meat of our discussion today. And I'm, I'm going to take just a, a step back um, and, and share what I'm seeing as a university instructor, some trends that I'm seeing. And the, some of the things w which just aren't, aren't good. It's not positive. And we have people who are, are coming out with very thorough policies, but very long policies, you know, in, in, in documents, you know, 60 page training documents and things like that. You have to be concise. But um, when you th think that you can individually as a district kind of create your own rule set for youth that first of all, isn't generally in their best interest, but it you you kind of get blurred into what is best interest. Is it best interest to have them participate in a fire drill? Fire drills can be kind of traumatic for anyone. You know, when you have that the flashing strobe and the horn and everything like that, the siren or whatever it is in the the system. But it's like 
So is the answer to that that we don't have such an obtrusive alarm system? Maybe we have more of a subtle alarm system? Well, no, no, right? We can't go with that because if we have a fire in the school, we've got to get kids out. We can't make the alarm system more subtle. We need a very a powerful you know, alarm system that, that is capturing multiple senses, you know, the strobe plus the siren and, and, and making people very aware of what's happening. So we need that. We can't tone that down. But then it comes into this whole part of, of you know, are we, what are we exposing people to um, as far as, as, as far as drills? So if we're worried about these things with fire drills in the opt-out, oh my goodness, where does this go for intruder drills, which are way over the top in a ton of districts, way over the top. Um, are we, you know, opting, opting students out of, of school intruder drills? Well, yes, we are. I mean, they, and see, there, there's that data. This is so frustrating for me because uh, I, I had a friend, a friend who was researching this, and he said, Dave, where do I go to find data on students being exempted out of, of drills? And uh, I said, you know what? I, I'm probably nowhere because, like, you legally can't do it. And he said, yeah, but I know the practice is happening. So do I should I just go to the schools and get this information? I said, well, no one's going to tell you that they're doing this. Nobody is going to tell you. So there's no one that is keeping data on this. There's no, there isn't a data set. So it, it's like an abeyance agreement when it comes to discipline. So you can give a student a, a suspension, an expulsion, a detention. Okay, so suspension and expulsion, those are reportable into the state. Those also go into OCR, Office of Civil Rights. Those are reportable things. You can do an abeyance agreement, which basically is kind of like a suspended sentence. Schools do this all the time now. So the event still happened, the incident still happened, but then there's this like, well, we're not going to punish it. We're not going to report it. We're going to, you know, try to educate, make the student aware, whatever. And okay, but then if that's the process you're doing, shouldn't that be documented somewhere that you're using abeyance agreements? Maybe this is a really good thing that you're using abeyance agreements and we're not suspending and having expulsions. But my perception is the abeyance agreement is just a way to avoid suspensions and expulsions, and it's not changing the behavior of students at all. It's not like it's introducing restorative practices, for example. So I think it's it's just garbage to use an abeyance agreement. Um, and I pointed this out in a podcast. I think it was number 17. I went through all of my podcasts, actually, and, and listened to them <laughs> to kind of see the progression of the show over time. It was 17 where I talked about expulsions and and suspensions and how the data is so manipulated at a statewide level. Wisconsin being one of those, by the way, and did put some up on the screen. Um, so very unfortunate that we don't have a, a data system which is really clear when it comes to reporting out discipline, suspension, expulsion, things like that, because a band's agreement's immediate, immediately wipes all of that out for reliability. But I think what needs to happen is that we need to explicitly have IEP plans for students or plans for students with disabilities, um, delineate how those students are being instructed for safety, and then a competency that they are able to demonstrate safety, whether it be that they demonstrate um, what they should do during a fire drill, tornado drill, intruder drill. And also that another part is that they demonstrate that they can access the threat reporting system and two, they can identify what a threat is to self or others. So this all goes together. But do I see this ever in an individualized education plan and students' plans and school plans that they do this? No. And maybe peppered periodically, it happens once in a while, but Systemically, no, absolutely not. This doesn't happen. And it doesn't happen because it's not required to happen. This should be required. Every so often they do a reauthorization of the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act. When they reauthorize IDEA, 
This should be mandated. This should also, it also fits in with ADA, it, uh, the American with Disabilities Act, and it continues to go further into a student's life as they become a young adult and an adult, that you need these skills. You can't exempt students from these life skills. This is just not acceptable. So I'm working on a white paper to this extent, and at some point I'll talk about the organization that I'm writing that for, but at this point I won't. Um, but it, this is a huge topic. I, I, it affects so many people. I say 10 million students with disabilities with special needs with or language barriers. The number's probably a lot higher. The number's really probably 15 million. 10, mil, 10 million is like the basal that I can prove through research. So if I'm challenged on that, I can bring out the federal data on students with disabilities. And, you know, we have 55 million students and the percentage that have, you know, disabilities. And we know some disabilities, if it's like speech language articulation, that's not really going to have any impact on, you know, fire drills and stuff like that. It's going to be students, you know, more probably with learning disabilities, intellectual disabilities, autism, so forth. But we do know this number of 10 million. Um, when I talk with other professionals, they always say to me, Dave, that, that number is low. It's closer to 15, maybe 20. I said, yeah, I get it. I, like, I know that. I know that. I know that. I have to give, though, a lowest common denominator that I can put some research to. Um, and still, I mean, if 10 million isn't a powerful enough number to evoke a reaction and action from you, then what is? I mean... 10 million, that's twice the population of my state. So, you know, one of those things. All right. So I am definitely ready for spring. More than you know. More than you know. I love biking. And I'm hoping within the next eight weeks, I'll be able to get out on the bike. We literally have, you know, eight feet of snow banks at the end of the driveways big ice, you know, all over the place. Everything's all frozen up and in because it's been so cold, these minus 10 evenings and stuff like that. And you have to get all of the salt off the road. A couple of good rains before you take the bike out because if you get the, the salt in your gear systems, it just like ruins all of it, just eats all of it up. So, um, but yeah, then the old safety doc over the cold and the voice thing and not having to, you know, I kind of look like Rocky, like running through Philadelphia, like da -da -da, training right here with my, my training garb and my hat, my, my gray beanie on. So, but I do appreciate the followers of the show and I, we have an uptick in followers and uptick in downloads. Please share this safetyphd.com is my website. You can go listen to previous podcasts. Um, I talked with, you know, that attorney, uh, Jim Sibley is going to be a guest on the show in late March. Uh, we have four dates, which we're picking from, but late March, he'll be a guest on the show. I've got some other guests lined up. Jason, um, not Jason, Justin Dooley, not Jason Dooley. Justin Dooley is going to be back on the show in the next couple months. Um, straight from uh, Dude Council. And we will be doing a follow-up to our very popular show last year. So um, appreciate that. Again, a shout-out to the405media.com out of Los Angeles, California Radio and Podcast.com. Thank you for supporting this show and Sprigio.com, the nation's leader in school safety threat reporting. Thank you so much. Safety Doc Podcast. 
with author, radio show host, and leading safety expert, Dr. David Perotti. Remember to check back each week for the latest, best, and most bizarre practices in safety preparation and crisis response. You can find Dr. Perotin on Twitter at SafetyPhD. And remember, the truth will keep you safe.